We do another show as well as Adventure Rider Radio called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You can listen to it everywhere podcasts are found. Or you can go to our website, adventureriderradio.com, and you can see all the information about it there. But last month's episode was a lot of fun because we did something new. It was a first for the show. Matter of fact, it was a first for any show of its kind. It was a first for adventure motorcycling. We sat down with the five panelists that we always have. Brian Ricks, Shirley Hardy Ricks, they're in Australia. Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. He's in British Columbia, Canada. Sam Manicom, he's in the UK. And Michelle Lampfair from the US and myself. Now, the background of what we did was we wanted to showcase, we, we, we kept talking about, we need to showcase these iconic places to ride. Somehow, we got to find a way to do this, to let everybody know about these incredible places. And then the idea of, of narrowing it down, sort of finding ways to talk about it, the idea of seven wonders came up. And we thought, perfect, that's it. So this is what we did. We had everyone come to the table with what they considered to be the best motorcycle rides in the world. There was a lot of them. The best areas are routes. And then we worked at narrowing that list down to only seven. And as you can probably imagine, it was a difficult task because everyone didn't agree, naturally. And that was part of the fun. But it was also necessary because we wanted to ensure that we chose the absolute top seven as best we could, that, that most people would agree on, that these, these are the top seven amazing rides. And in the end, we created the seven wonders of the motorcycle travel world. And that's presented in the December episode of Adventure Rider Radio Raw. I'll put a link in the show notes to this so you'll be able to go there and find it. Now, while we were debating the destinations, two routes came up that run somewhat parallel in South America. They were brought up, I think both of them were brought up by Michelle Lampfair. And because Michelle in particular felt so strongly that these two routes must be included and the others sort of agreed. I think almost everybody agreed to that. But we had to stick to our seven wonders for obvious reasons. So Michelle suggested that what we should do is because this is a great way to experience these two routes, we should make it into a loop. These two routes work perfectly as a loop and they almost should be done as a loop if you're going to go there just for them. So that's what we did. We decided these two routes would become a loop and the name put out was the Patagonia Loop. You've never heard of the Patagonia Loop before that because it was just invented on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Now, according to our, our Raw group of panelists, our motorcycle travelers, this is one of the best, one of the seven best riding experiences in the world. The seven best. Now, these are riders that have been around and ridden all kinds of places, not to mention have their thumb on the pulse of what's going on and, and see what other people are reporting from other areas pictures, et cetera, et cetera. These stand out as the seven best. And this, this loop is in the seven best rides in the world. And the great thing is you can fly there. You could rent a bike and experience it in just weeks if you wanted to do just that. So today we have Michelle Lampfair to talk about the all new Patagonia loop. Now, just in case you had no intention of ever going to South America, you never thought you would ever want to ride in Patagonia, I would caution you to listen to this episode because I'm willing to bet at the end of it, you're going to find yourself getting on the internet and checking out the Patagonia Loop. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets, motobreeze.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com.
Lamphere. I am from Custer, South Dakota, the Black Hills of South Dakota. And I am a motorcycle traveler in the winter season. And I own and operate a small motel in Custer called the Chalet Motel. Michelle, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having me, Jim. It's great to be here. I like that. You're not giving up that um, the motorcycle travel portion <laughs> of you. And that's great. I mean, because yeah. you have a business that requires you to be there like half the year and you're not letting go of the motorcycle traveler in you. In fact, I think I'm I'm holding on to it even more tightly as I feel, you know, the last couple of winters, especially with COVID and other things, I haven't been able to travel as much. I think I'm grabbing onto that even more tightly now. I'm starting to make plans and think about getting back on the bike in winter. Just very tempting these days. Yeah. You mean getting, you're thinking about getting on the bike in winter, like riding in the winter, or you mean going somewhere? That's what it makes you think about going somewhere. Going somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) I should describe that better. (laughs) Because Getting away from the snow and cold. (laughs) You do have an ultimate setup here because you have a summer business that's, I guess, relatively, are you shut down in the winter completely? completely shut down. So I start working usually in March and then I'm finished working end of October, early November. And I have about four months each winter that I can go and travel, play, go see family and friends. If I want to take a motorcycle trip somewhere that's got warm enough weather, I can do that. It's not as easy for me to ride out of South Dakota. to So to travel from here on a bike is a little bit harder, but I can, you know, do a destination trip, go rent a bike someplace, borrow a bike, um, or if I plan well enough in advance, I can get a bike out of here before I get socked in with snow. Mm. You, you said you're in Custer, South Dakota. You're in a yes. place that's an amazing riding area. That must hurt a little bit in the summertime. It does. It's it's a beautiful place to ride. And of course, I watch hundreds of motorcycles drive by my business every day <laughs> as, a, as I'm going to work in the morning and working away. And it, no, honestly, it's it's really exciting to see people coming from all over the U.S. and all over the world to enjoy the Black Hills. We have a lot of tours from overseas, people that fly in from Europe or um, Australia, all over, and rent motorcycles and tour the U.S. and do the the iconic Route 66 and um, maybe tour and see some of the national parks. And the Black Hills is really high on a lot of people's lists for good reason. So it, mm-hmm. it's fun to see everybody enjoying it. And you're not far from Sturgis? Not far from Sturgis. I'm about 75 miles, and that's where I was born. Born and brought up in Sturgis. Yeah. What was that like? (laughs) Crazy. It's everything (laughs) you can imagine and more. But was it crazy to you? I mean, because you you grow up in, you you know, if you grew up in the carnival, the carnival is what you know. (laughs) That's really a a bad (laughs) reference or or, or parallel there. Perfect. That's the perfect (laughs) parallel. I think it's it's not unlike that. No, I think you. Yeah. I I remember being probably 12 or 13 and in an afternoon being allowed to walk um, with my parent, um, my dad actually walking down Main Street in Sturgis. And I I mean, he managed a a campground, the facilities for a campground in Sturgis at the time. And so I think we were headed to the hardware store. I don't even know, but we were walking down a block or two of Main Street and it was broad daylight but there were topless women and just <laughs> crazy things going on. You know, the, the, what do they call an assless chaps or whatever. Oh, but right. anyway, uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And I remember being quite um, bug eyed, I'm sure thinking this is just insane. Um, and you're thinking yeah. when I grow up, that's what I want to do. No, definitely not. Oh, you were? Because usually <laughs> no. that's a kid's perspective. <laughs> oh my gosh, no. And in motorcycles were loud and intimidating. And of course they were the rumbly Harley Davidson crowd. And and the, the, the people were kind of loud and rumbly and intimidating too. And so, right. no, it wasn't appealing to me. I, I, um, I, I like traveling off the beaten path. And, and it's funny because the first bike I ever wound up buying then was a Harley Davidson, as it turned out. Um, but I use that, I think, as as a door into this world of motorcycle adventure travel and combining my two loves, which are travel and riding. 
So long distance trips or getting off the beaten path and just having a good wander on a motorcycle. The motorcycle happens to be um, my favorite vehicle of travel, but uh, travel is really the primary thing for me. That first Harley Davidson, why did you get that Harley? Well, because I was still living near the Black Hills and a lot of my friends and peers were riding Harleys. And, and um, when you get together for rides, um, that, that just seemed to be the, the natural course of, you know, what I was going to get for a bike. Because when I'm asking my peers and friends, hey, what should I get for a motorcycle? Of course, everyone rides a Harley. And the only thing on the menu was different versions of Harleys. I was well, going to say, you, they're thinking you're talking model. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not Do you make. want an eight, 883, a 1200? Those are both sportsters. Or would you prefer something a little bit bigger? Should you go right away to a Springer or, you know, a fat boy or what, what have you? Right. I love the Sportster. That's a, that's a bike that I looked at many, many years ago. Never got, but that's a bike I looked at. No, but what I was really meaning when I was asking about the Harleys, why, why a bike? What got you onto a bike? Um, well, I think I grew up um, riding four-wheelers and uh, working cattle. I, we rode horseback a lot in my family as well. But for ranch tools around here, a lot of people at the time used four-wheelers to go out and fix fence, to move cattle, to check on things. So I rode four-wheelers a lot. And then in winter, because we have long winters in South Dakota and a lot of snow in the western part of the state in the Black Hills, so I had a snowmobile and I got my first snowmobile. I'd ridden them in high school. Different friends had them in the area. And again, they were used on ranches to get out and check fences. If there's a snowstorm and you've got to go out and check cattle, you just use whatever vehicle you need to, to get there. And I had a snowmobile. So I spent a number of winters, probably oh, five or six years riding the whole winter on snowmobile and thinking, you know, Hey, I, I really should get, um, a motorcycle in summer and get out and enjoy that. So I'd ridden a dirt bike. The first time that I learned how to ride a bike was in a, um, a prairie dog town. And I rode a, a boyfriend's, uh, I think it was an XR 500 Honda. And I was not tall enough to reach the ground. I didn't have long enough legs, I should say. So he sat on the back and acted as my legs while I practiced shifting gears and using the hand controls and all of that. So that's how I learned to ride. But again, it was so intimidating at that time. I just thought, no, I'm not interested in this. I'll stay with a four-wheeler and snowmobiles in winter. But eventually I thought, yeah, I want to get back to that. And I took a motorcycle safety course and got my license and uh, that was it. That's an interesting way to learn how to ride. It kind of reminds me of that skydiving thing that they do, you know, where you skydive, but you're stuck to the real skydiver. <laughs> Tandem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess no, that's I, it. I, yeah. I wouldn't know, but yes, that that's exactly what it was. He was my legs. <laughs> right. Right. I think that's, that's a good way to do it. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned travel in there and you said that, that travel, you know, is, is your first love, I guess, really, especially when I think of you growing up in Sturgis now this is my very close-minded thought processes, but I can picture you growing up in a small town like that with so much going on. Like, let's face it, I, I'm sure you wouldn't need to leave Sturgis to get stimulation because you've got it right there. Why look outward? Well, maybe because a lot of the world came into Sturgis. I mean, that's, I, I would say for me, uh. um, you know, Sturgis really represents, a, at least during the two weeks of the rally or the 10 days of the rally, it's such an interesting cross section of humanity and it's a crossroads of all these people coming in and it gives you a glimpse of what their lives might be like in other places. So you see Australians and Europeans, you hear different languages, you see uh, the Harley Davidson logo t-shirts that they've brought from their home dealerships from all over the world. So it just really is a, a place that you're reminded all the time that there's so much more out in the world to see and um, I think that was certainly a reminder. I think a bigger part of it for me was just, um, I've always been interested and I don't know why, even as a kid, I, my mom subscribed to a children's version of a National Geographic magazine for me when I was little. And I remember, you know, seeing, you know, an article on the pyramids of Egypt or on, uh, um, you know, a, a different country, some sort of an animal in Africa or an old cathedral in Europe. And I remember being fascinated and thinking someday I want to get up, get old enough and, and be able to travel and uh, go see these places in person instead of just in the pages of a magazine. Mm. What was your first adventure then? Um, 
gosh, I don't know adventure. And I mean, the, the other part of that too, is I grew up camping and canoeing. Uh, my family was very outdoorsy. Of course, like I said, working on a ranch or working on a farm, you, you know, spend a lot of time outdoors. And I think I, all of those seeds combined. Do you remember the first trip that, that sort of really did it for you that, um, like, cause I know you were already inspired from the, the way you grew up and things you already had the desire to get out there and explore, but was there a trip that you went on maybe by yourself, maybe with somebody else that you sort of came back and it was like, Oh, I'm in love with this. I would say I, I went to Europe. I saved money and I think it had been a goal of mine for a number of years to get to Europe. That seemed for some reason for me, from where I'm from and my background, really the, you know, the epitome of travel and going to see old cathedrals or big cities. And so I went to the UK and uh, did some rail travel and this would have been in my mid twenties, early twenties, gosh, early twenties, I guess. Um, and I kind of bopped around the UK, went up to Scotland, uh, took a ferry over to Ireland, spent two or three weeks just touring around uh, the UK and then came home. And, and I know from that trip, I was absolutely hooked to travel. And that wasn't related to motorcycles at all. Motorcycles came back into my life just a little bit later. Um, but I, I maintained them as two separate interests for a while. Travel, of course, um, I mean, traveling whenever I could, but usually flying in someplace, doing destination travel, where I would fly in, stay for a couple of weeks someplace, and then fly home because, of course, I had a job and obligations and all of that that I had to work with. Um, but later, as I when I got my motorcycle license and I was riding usually just on weekends in the Black Hills, so that was something I would do during the summer, go for a ride on a Saturday, put on a couple hundred miles, go to Devil's Tower, go ride Needles Highway, what have you and then come home. And that was just kind of a weekend interest. And it wasn't really for a long time that I, um, I, I hadn't combined those two until um, I met a motorcycle traveler from the UK through couch surfing, who had been traveling by motorcycle all through South America, through North America, and headed towards Alaska on his motorcycle. And I remember hearing, you know, meeting him and having a, a beer and sitting and sharing stories. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it never occurred to me to join those two interests of mine. And after that, it was something that was really high on my priority list. I wanted to take a road trip. I'd always done road trips by car, loved them. So I was really interested in traveling by motorcycle. It was everything that I loved rolled into one, camping, going up the back roads, you know, taking a road trip. Um, just having some alone time, getting away from things, being able to design your own trip. So if you didn't want to follow the established tourist route, you could design your own trip. And um, just being out in the elements, smelling the smells, enjoying the weather, and sometimes dreading the weather, but all of it, it, it was just sensory overload. And, and that was when I was hooked. And that would have been probably, oh gosh, almost 15 years ago. Do you remember when you, when you first were packing your bike for the first time going out and, and, and trying to fit everything? Because one thing yeah. that I do note <laughs> with motorcycle travel, and anyone who's ever packed a motorcycle will run into this, is just how little room we have on our bike. <laughs> yes. Yes. I do remember several times. I, I think the first really long trip probably would have been, I took, and this, I still had a Harley. I rode out to Joshua Tree. And I had saddlebags and like, um, they call it, um, oh, like a, a sissy bar bag. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember trying to fit gear into that. And I wasn't really even camping. I was staying in hotels then, but I had all sorts of gear. So I thought, okay, I need rain gear. I need cold weather gear. I need, you know, sleeveless t-shirts because I'm going out to Joshua tree. It's going to be hot out there. <laughs> and so just clothing. I mean, that's how ridiculous I was to start. Even the clothing was too overwhelming for my luggage. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And, and there's no <laughs> spots to store stuff. I mean, you know, I, I, I can remember doing it and, and certainly I like I've done outdoor stuff my whole life. Same thing as you and canoeing and camping and all that sort of stuff. But when you really try and pack it on a bike, it's, it's almost even different than backpacking because yeah. really aren't a lot of spaces to put it, to put your gear in. You, I mean, you're sort of limited to a couple of, of packs, panniers, and that's it. You try and look around the frame and stuff. There just really isn't any practical space to put in anything. So it's, it's kind of strange that we love 
traveling with our gear on a motorcycle like that. <laughs> you know, there's even beyond that, there's the little intricacies of where do you need to pack something so that it's handy? Like if I oh, want yeah. my camera handy, do I want that in my tank bag? Do I wear it on a lanyard tucked inside my jacket? Yeah. And, and, and even further than that, I remember and still pack to this day, if I'm taking soft luggage, I'm conscientious of if, if I have an off, if I drop the bike, what's on the outside of my bag, um, my saddlebags, what's going to take the brunt of the imp impact. Mm -hmm. So how do I protect what's in my panniers? Um, yeah. And how, you know, do you, how do you keep it locked? Is it weather tight to everything? There's so many thoughts that go into it and you just really learn as you go. What is your bike of choice for travel? I would say it still is going to be for longer distance, my KLR 650. Mm -hmm. And that is the bike that I took to from South Dakota up into Canada and then turned and went South to Ushuaia. I, I love my KLR and maybe it's my exact KLR even more so than the model, just because it's so finely tuned for me. It's been lowered. Um, I know that kit, I know that bike and have a lot of memories. So maybe it's partly sentimental, but functionally it really is just a good bike. Um, I think what is the, the saying, a jack of all trades, master of none. It's not great <laughs> at anything, but it's good enough at everything. So mm -hmm. it's perfect. And it's a well-loved bike. I mean, a lot of people love that. Yeah. And I know you ride a KLR, but what you, you were talking recently about looking at another bike, weren't you? Well, I've been wanting a Triumph Scrambler. I have been shopping both new and used ones. I haven't purchased one yet, but it, I think it's on the horizon. And then I also have a couple of little bikes and particularly where I live, I'm just a couple miles from the national forest service and, and, and treasure of all these forest service roads. So I have two little um, bikes, two Yamahas, a little XT 225 and an XT 250, the 250 is fuel injected. And I take that for a lot of camping trips in the black Hills. And I've taken it. I rode um, with a couple of women, a section, they did the continental divide ride from Banff down to the border with Mexico. And I joined them from here with my XT250. So I rode with them for, I don't know, from somewhere in Montana down to Colorado. Um, so I was only able to take a week off of work and we crammed that section of the trail into a week. Wow. And um, the, yeah, the 250 is a great little bike. It's obviously not good for highway speeds and for a lot of other things, but for that kind of riding, it was perfect. Yeah, I like the 250. It's a little small for me, I, I find, yeah. but but I really like it. It's, it's such a neat bike. But what about packing on the 250? I mean, you've got even less space there. <laughs> you have even less space and fuel capacity. I, I mean, oh, right. yeah. the fuel range was, was really a big problem for me on that. So I had to carry external canisters. But yeah, you just have to be smart. And again, that's where practice comes in. You you know every little detail of what's going in literally to every pocket of your tank bag, your jacket pockets, what's going into, like I, I carried a little um, uh, Ortley waterproof bag on the back rack and I had little soft luggage can, uh, bags on the side um, of my bikes. And yeah, you have to think about every detail of what you're taking with you. And the thing is, and, and would you agree with this? The, th the thing is, is it, it's not so much finding a spot for everything that you want to take. It's learning not to take everything that you want to take, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah. And it, it's, it really is somewhat practice in that you realize there've been a few trips that I've taken and I've gotten home and I realize how, when I lay everything back out and that's kind of become practice for me. When I unpack, I lay it all out and look at and sort, what did I never use? And that's not to say that I'm not taking my tool roll or my- Or your first aid uh, kit. Yeah, exactly. Of <laughs> course, I hope there are some things that I take and I hope I never use. Right, Those things yeah. are the perfect example. But there are, you know, some extras. I've, I've really electronically, I used to carry a DSLR camera, an iPhone. I even had a point and shoot that I wore in a lanyard in my jacket. So I've really kind of condensed all of that. And thankfully, you know, technology is advanced enough that our cameras are really able to serve so many functions. And that's actually reduced a lot of my pack size. Are you talking but about your phone camera? My, yeah, I used to take a DLSR, DSLR, a point and shoot and a phone. And now I only take my phone. Mm, right. Yeah, we, we sort of talked about that on Raw. I remember that mm -hmm. that came up um, about the subject of that. And, and really, I, I mean, and I was mentioning how expensive 
phones are to buy a good yeah. phone. You're, you're $1,500, but I think it was Grant that made the point of, I mean, look at the price of a DSLR and, and the cameras and the phones are amazing. So that makes yeah. perfect sense. But you're also using it, I'm sure, for navigation then too. I, I am, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for communication, for sending emails, for checking websites, for everything. Right. And the new iPhone apparently has satellite transmission available. I think this is a system that they're sort of working into. The, the, so the latest iPhone, it's, it's sort of like one of the, the, the sat transponders, right? Like a spot or a Zaleo. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're rolling it out now. And, and I guess it only has limited uh, functionality right now, um, maybe for SOS. And, mm-hmm. But it, you don't need cell service, which means you don't need the terrestrial cell tower. You're just using satellite reception, which that's pretty neat. And once that becomes mainstream... Well, all of a sudden it's accessible to everybody. And and how incredible is that? That one device that you're saying has replaced all those things for you and, and, and reduced the amount of stuff that you're carrying with you. Yeah, it's incredible the advances that technology makes from year to year, from model to model, and the yeah. difference that it can really make in how you pack. Do you take a computer with you? Um, I do. I take a small laptop because I journal. So for me, it's much easier. I've tried making notes on my phone and I've done that with a couple of smaller trips. When I did the Continental Divide ride, I did not take a laptop. So I made notes on my phone of like my starting and ending odometer reading, the the routes that we take, which road number, um, which trail number, some of the notes from the day, like if we ran into a mechanical problem or some of the sites that we saw, people that we saw, those types of things, because I either am going to blog or maybe, you know, work on a story for a magazine or something down the road. So I do like to keep notes, but Mm -hmm. again, um, my phone serves that purpose. It depends on how I'm traveling. I, I do still take a laptop for the most part though, because I just like the convenience of typing notes on that as opposed to on your phone. It's interesting, all the electronics that we carry nowadays yeah. and it seems to be getting more and more you know because you also carry a, i assume some sort of spot or something i do i have a an in reach so mm-hmm. yes and, and i still i i use that whether i'm on the bike or not so if i'm doing some hiking in the hills i i find that i carry that with me a lot just for peace of mind mm-hmm. yeah do you have your pack all, all set up like i mean you have your your panniers packed or at least all the stuff sitting there all the time ready to go or do you do the repack every time I do a repack every time. So I actually have um, two shelving units that are stacked up and I've got most of my camping and motorcycle gear on the shelves. And then I have some, you know, a wall of hooks and nails. So I've got soft luggage, camelbacks, those things hanging on nails. Wow. But for, for the most part, my, you know, I've got three or four different tents, depending if I'm traveling solo or how light I'm going. If I'm actually doing backpacking, I've got a backpacker weight light, super light, uh, one person tent, or I've got a two person tent. Um, again, just kind of a variety of things. I've got a couple different sleeping bags. I've got a down bag for colder weather and then a, a polyester bag for anything near humidity. Um, but it doesn't pack as small. It doesn't get as condensed. So, and it's a bit heavier than the down bag. So you sound incredibly organized. Do you also have your like <laughs> labels on your drawers as well? You open up it says socks, shirts. I, yeah. And I have a label maker. No, not in my drawers, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> I have, I have totes and tubs on the shelves. So yeah. <laughs> oh, you were serious about the label maker. I thought you were yeah. kidding, but it's oh, not no. in your drawers. You don't open your drawers and have a spot for no. socks and all the socks are the same and they're all no. in the same direction. <laughs> all of that, that sort of stuff. Those I happen to know by heart. So yeah, right. I don't need a label maker. <laughs> right. I've been trying to do it where I have a pack ready to go for at least day stuff. So it's all always ready. And I've done this before, but I've sort of got away from it in recent years. And I find myself sort of grabbing things at the last minute when I'm off to, to go do something, even for a day trip or a couple of days. And it's nice to have a pack that's already set up or like you have it there. That's the ultimate, all organized. So you can just go and grab what you need, throw it in a pack and you're off because nothing's worse than digging through a pile of stuff to try and figure out what you're going to take. And, and, and of course, to remember that you have everything, are you using lists? Um, I do. I have a couple of lists, but I'm, I would say that's more for long distance trips for me. If I'm doing weekend or day stuff, I just go out to the, you know, my storage room, my gear room and pick through what I think I need. And I guess if I forget something, I wing it. I figure it out on the road. Well, it's easy to do on a motorcycle trip, isn't it, really? Because yeah. you can always stop somewhere and, and get something. And, and of course, that is a point. I mean, I think Grant Johnson has, has said that ever since I, I first met him. It's a point he's always trying to make is, you know, relax. You can find stuff on the road. You're riding places where <laughs> other people live. There's a road for a reason, you know. 
those That's sorts true. of things rather than trying to pack everything that you you think you could possibly use and through different seasons as well. You've done that before where you've you've been out long enough where you've had to transition seasons. So from cold to yes. warm and have your extra clothes. What did you do with that? Well, I think the key for me for clothing, it's easy enough because it's it, the key really there is going to be buying a riding jacket and riding pants that are more adaptable. So if they have adequate venting, um, if they have, you know, some convertibility, I have some riding pants that you can actually unzip these panels from the front and below is a mesh panel. So Ooh. they're really breathable in summer season, That's nice. but when I fully zip them up, they're nice and warm. And then you have an insulation, a removable insulating layer. So there's like a, a quilted pair of liner pants that go inside the main riding pants. Same thing with a jacket. Um, and really for clothing, then you just pack sort of an assortment of things. Like I said, maybe a sleeveless t-shirt or tank top. And then you have some base layers and maybe even warmer layers, all that fit. Layering is the key for everything for clothing. And do you use heated gear as well? I have had, I, I have had a heated jacket as well as heated gloves. And um, I've never had heated socks. I have carried in, in really colder climates. I've carried some of those disposable toe warmer packets, if you know oh, what yeah, I mean, yeah. the kind that you open up. So I've had a couple of those. I find that I don't um, use my heated jacket that much. I, I If I dress appropriately, that seems to bother me, be just a little bit too much heat. But my hands get cold because I don't have heated grips. I still don't have heated grips. I, I know that they exist, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have them. So I have heated gloves and those I actually do really appreciate. We're going to take a quick break while I tell you about just two things. Then when we come back, we're going to jump right into the Patagonia Loop. Stay with us. We have a lot more coming up. Pearly's Possum Socks are the best cold weather socks that I've ever worn. I am wearing them every single day right now because it's winter where I am. I'm not riding my motorcycle at all. And I kind of feel guilty because I'm wearing these socks that are actually designed for riding motorcycles but they're the best thing to keep your feet warm. They wick away the moisture. They don't stink if you wear them too long. Not that you would ever do that. And they keep your feet warm. Like it's the most important thing. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. You will not go wrong with these socks, especially for motorcycle riding or any outdoors activities you do. But for motorcycle riding, your feet are out there in the wind. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. You know, if you listen to our rider skills segments, you'll hear us talk all the time about peg weighting. Peg weighting is really important because it's how you control your bike. Standing your pegs is really important because it's a way to control your bike. And all this has everything to do with what you're standing on. Think about it. When you stand up, you're standing on your foot pegs. Quality foot pegs are like any other quality tool that you use. And when you're using a tool so often that's so important for riding, you need to buy quality. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. They've been building parts for motorcycles since 1976, and all those years of experience are poured directly into the adventure motorcycle foot pegs they make. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. We do another show called Adventure Rider Radio Raw, which you know because you're on there as one of the, the co-hosts. And last month, we did something interesting. We came up with the idea of doing the seven wonders of the motorcycle travel world, where we listed the top seven places that we felt should be in this incredible list of the seven wonders for us motorcyclists. And when we started that day, collectively, probably there were, I don't know, I would say a hundred or more nominations of places that were must experience places or routes. And we narrowed that down. We used a few techniques. 
One was that you could second someone else's nomination, but you had to give up one of your own <laughs> for it. And this was the, the whole natural selection thing we were trying to do. The idea was that after hearing all the top nominations of other people, then you might agree with one of theirs and think, oh, that's probably more important than mine. And you would sacrifice one of your own, which I know you did a couple of times, Yeah, I, I think on yours, which was very nice. So the sacrificing was all part of how we narrowed this this list down to just seven. It was a lot of fun. We we had great uh, um, talk, uh, great debate rather on it as well, trying to figure out what belonged and what we could set aside. So we ended up with those those seven wonders. But when we were doing this, you had two that you didn't want to you didn't want to let go of either one really, and you decided that or you suggested that we turn this into a loop. And everybody got excited about that. We thought that was a great idea. Everybody knows the route and thought that that was wonderful. I want to talk about that. What were those two routes? Well, I have to say, first of all, that episode was so much fun. And I think we could definitely have made it the 100 <laughs> wonders of the world. There was no shortage of fantastic ideas, um, places and roads, etc. The two that I really felt passionately about. And I appreciated the other panel members being, uh, being understanding of me and, and actually being um, supportive of the idea of creating a loop because physically, geographically, they're, they're very close to each other and it sort of makes sense. So maybe we've come upon something new. Maybe we've created something new here. Uh, but the two roads were the Caratera Astral, which is also known as Ruta 7. And it's about 750 miles long. It's located in very southern Chile. So it's sort of where all the roads come to an end. You're at the very bottom of the continent, bottom of the country. Carretera Astral uh, starts in Puerto Montt and ends at a dead end uh, section of the road at Via O'Higgins. And um, that road is stunning and gorgeous. It's a north-south uh, road that's on the western side of the Andes. And on the eastern side of the Andes, running parallel to it, is Ruta Quarenta or Ruta 40. And Ruta Quarenta is actually much longer. It's in Argentina, so it's it's in the adjacent country. It's on the other side of the Andes. Ruta Quarenta runs from the northern end of Argentina all the way down to the southern end, Tierra del Fuego. And it's actually much longer. It's something like 3,000 miles long, uh, 5,000 kilometers. And... We're only talking about the southern end of that that runs parallel with Carretera Astral and extends to the bottom of the continent. So where they they run parallel to each other, technically when, when two straight lines run parallel, they don't form a loop. But there are a number of roads that cross in between them, that cross the Andes, starting um, around Junín de los Andes, which is a town in Argentina or near Puerto Montt in um, Chile. You can cross a few different places along those two routes. So technically, I probably should have called it a ladder instead of a loop <laughs> because it's like two straight lines with like six to eight rungs crossing in between to connect those two straight you could, lines. You could go back and forth, and back, but you'd be missing big yeah. chunks on either one, though, if you do that. Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I don't, I don't think that you can go wrong. I think when we were talking and, and definitely my suggestion would be as we were talking on, on that episode of the podcast if you can connect the two of them and ride the Patagonian sections, the whole length of Carretera Astral and the Patagonian section of Ruta Quarenta, that's the goal. And if you can connect those two together and uh, come back around to your starting point, make a loop of them, which you can easily do, instead of taking all of the rungs of the ladder, you take the top one and the bottom one. So you're reaching the, the southernmost and northernmost sections of Patagonia and covering, of course, every mile that you can cover. That's the goal, isn't it? So, of course. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned Patagonia. Talk about Patagonia. What, what is Patagonia? So Patagonia is the southern um, portion of South America. It's both west of the Andes and east of the Andes. And um, on the Chileno side, on the Western side of the Andes, I would say that the land really, for me, rep reminds me of British Columbia and coastal Alaska. It's fjordlands. It's got pockets of temperate rainforest. On the Argentinian side of the mountains, the Eastern side, it's more like grassland. And there's even sections of desert or arid steppes. 
And it's everything in general. I think I've heard a couple of different rough guidelines, but it's roughly anything south of the 38th parallel in South America. So in Chile, that basically means anything south of like Pucón or Villa Rica, which is actually a lake district north of where the Carretera Astral starts. And in Argentina, it's the land south of basically starting in the lake district of the Argentinian side of the Andes as well. Um, some people refer to Viedma on the East Coast as being the cutoff of where you enter or exit Patagonia. So it's everything kind of in that southern, narrow, um, thin point of the continent down at the bottom. And it's snowy mountains, it's rugged land, it's wild winds, it's, it's famous for its winds, and it's just stunningly beautiful. So for those who might have trouble picturing exactly where we're talking about here, South America, you, I think most people will picture that tip. We're talking about mm -hmm. that bottom tip of South America. And Chile is, if you're looking at it on a regular map with north to the top of the page and, well, and south to the bottom of the page, on the left is Chile and on the right is Argentina. And Chile's kind of a narrow strip, isn't it? It's, it's sort of like it's just the coastal, uh, the, the western side of the landmass and Argentina's the rest. That's correct. Yeah. Chile is a very unusually shaped country. If you, if you can see the borders or see a map of Chile, it would be, I mean, if you proportionately, it'd be something like five feet tall and one foot wide, the map. I mean, it's just very long and thin. It's something like 2,500 miles north to south and like 150 miles east to west. It's, it's crazy how the shape of the country is just, just this sliver of land on the coastal side of the Andes to the, to the west of the continent. So in the States, you fold your maps in squares because it's easy mm -hmm. to do. It's a big, you know, roughly square area, but in Chile, you're going to have to roll it. That's right. <laughs> it's exactly. just a big long map. It's, it's like a banner out. turned sideways. <laughs> yeah. So, so what are the, the two, okay. So it's the route of 40 that's in Argentina. So that's the more uh, inland or, or Eastern route. The Carretera Astral is in Chile. It's on the Western side. I assume it's, you know, much more mountainous. Is, is it more mountainous on the Chile side? It is. Carretera yeah. Astral um, is, it, so it translates in, in Spanish, it means Southern Highway. And it was built in the 70s by the Chileno government as a way of accessing some of those small fishing villages and coastal villages down in the southern part of their country where people weren't getting services. They didn't have roads. They would travel by boat. Mm. So people, life was very rugged, very remote. They get a lot of, you know, not dissimilar to coastal Alaska. They get a lot of snow um, and really live a very remote life in these fjord lands. So that highway was was built to access those areas, and it is literally right along the coast or travels along the valleys that are just in from the coast, kind of up through these fjordlands. And Ruta Cuarenta, because it runs the whole length of Argentina, is it's near the base of the Andes. You can the you can almost always see them from the road. And I haven't ridden all of Ruta Cuarenta. I think I I piecemealed it, so I zigzagged back and forth between Chile. In Argentina, I don't know, maybe 10 times, something like that when I was headed down towards Ushuaia, but I didn't catch the Northern section of, of Ruta Cuarenta. So again, we're talking about this Patagonian section. It really stays close enough that you can see the Andes and the snow-capped peaks out to the West of the road. Um, but the road itself runs across long straight sections of grassland. And I mean, in the Midwest, we'd call it prairie but you can see the mountains off to the West. So why do you think both of them um, are so important? Well, I think most, most motorcycle travelers don't like to do dead end routes. So you don't like to go in and out the same way. If you're going to, if you're going to go out to, you know, a part of the world, you like to see as much of it as you can. So going down Carretera Astral is stunning and it's gorgeous. And I have to say in hindsight, I would not have missed it wouldn't have been a burden in any way to double back and have gone back the exact same route and retrace mm. my steps because it was that stunning. I think you would appreciate the view from every direction. But as I headed south for, you know, 750 miles on the Carretera Astral, the goal was Ushuaia. And for many people in that part of the world, it is, or at least seeing some of the national parks in Argentina, which are on Ruta Cuarenta. So 
if you head south on Carretera Astral and you get to Villa O'Higgins, that's the very southern end, which I did not go all the way to the end. I went as far as Coleta Tortel, which is a little bit shy of that. Maybe, I don't even know, maybe 60 miles, 80 miles shy of the end. That's but it? Then, you were that yeah. close to the end. You didn't, why didn't you go to the end? <laughs> well, well, hey, you, you have to leave something for the next trip, I guess. Oh, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, then I turned and crossed over the Andes, crossed into Argentina, and hit Ruta Cuarenta and kept carrying south on that because that's where I got into the national parks in Argentina, Los Glaciares, which is near a town called El Chalten. And if anybody's a rock climber or, or is interested in, in alpining or any of that, Fitzroy is near El Chalten. It's very famous with mountain climbers, rock climbers. Um, so we went to El Chalten, then kept going on south towards, uh, you can go south towards Torres del Paine National Park, which is actually back in Chile. And again, you're just kind of doing this dance, crossing the border uh, many times between those two countries. When you're saying Ruta Corenta, it's really what you're saying is Ruta 40. Because when we're saying Ruta 40, we're using right. half Spanish, I guess, and half English? Uh, Ruta is Spanish. So Ruta Corenta is, yeah, Route 40. In Spanish. In Spanish. But yeah, we, we always say Ruta 40. I mean, everybody seems to say that. And what Ruta you're doing is you're, you're saying it's, you're splitting it. You're saying Ruta, <laughs> which is Spanish, and 40, which is English. Correct. Yes. I suppose you want to pay some homage to <laughs> to the Spanish version of it, right? Right. But, but, yeah. but you're saying it correctly as, as a local would say it. I, and I suppose that's just a habit I had because when I was there, I had, I spoke in Spanish the whole time. So mm-hmm. it's a habit. I still think of it as Ruta Corinta. Right. How long do you think it would take to do this if you did it as a loop the way you're proposing? So depending on where you start, um, if you, and really, if you think of the top where you enter Patagonia is somewhere near Villa Rica or Pucón in Chile or the Lake District in Argentina, going down to Ushuaia, well, and you don't have to go all the way to Ushuaia, this loop portion of it keeps you on the mainland. So if you did Carretera Austral, scooted over to Argentina and then headed back north, I mean, I suppose technically you could do it in a week, but you could take more time and see some of those end of the road places and maybe visit a couple of the rungs of the ladder, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I think in order to do it justice, you probably need something like two to three weeks. And uh, Ushuaia, I mean, that really wouldn't be your goal. I mean, it's, you know, it could be, could be worthy, but it wouldn't be your goal really if you're going to do this loop. Not in this loop. It isn't. That's just nearby if you wanted to add it to it. So if you were going to fly in, because you, you mentioned at one point, you said something about you could rent a bike. If you're going to mm-hmm. fly in somewhere, like if you were going to do it, how would you do it? Well, I, I have a friend who lives in Santiago. I've actually met him through Horizons Unlimited a number of years ago. He and his girlfriend were traveling in the U.S. on a KLR, of course. They had ridden up from Chile. Um, and he's started a small motorcycle rental business in Santiago. So that's a lot farther north than I'm suggesting here. But me personally, that's who I would would contact. I remember um, traveling south, though, and staying in the town of Osorno, Chile. And there was a dealership there that rented bikes in Osorno. And you can do self-guided tours from there. And that actually is a really good staging point as well. It's not too far from the start of the Carretera Astral. You could go south, do the Carretera, cross the Andes over in Argentina, and then ride back up Ruta Cuarenta and then cross back into Chile to close that loop and return the bike. If you're renting the bike, is there any problem with crossing the border? Because you mentioned you're crossing the border many times. There can be, and that's something you need to be aware of and make sure you communicate with the tour company. With most rental companies, I think that they address that. There is um, yes, normally a requirement that you have to show the registration of the bike when you do any border crossing, especially if you're going to do multiple crossings, but rental companies um, have addressed those issues and, and they have the paperwork that you need to be able to take the bike into another country. So that'd be a very cool way to do it. You could just fly in, rent the bike, spend a week or two weeks or three weeks. I mean, you're saying, I think two to three weeks is really uh-huh. ideal. So if you had the two to three weeks, you rent the bike, you go in, you do the ride and you leave the bike, fly home. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. 
Yeah, that seems like you who's don't have your... to spend six months riding down there to get to the starting point. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. You know, <laughs> like, it, it, and not everybody has all that time to to do that, or or even the desire to do it. Because by the way you're describing this route, I mean, it, it just sounds like just something that is a must see, and obviously that's why it's in the Seven Wonders that we did. You mentioned your friend in, in Santiago. What's the company called? Um, I will give you something to put in show notes. I think it's Austral Tours. Okay. He's on Instagram. Okay. So you, you give me that link. We'll put it in the show notes and, and yeah. people will be able to find it there. Um, and then that can be an option for them as well. I mean, like you said, it's quite a ways up from uh, the start of this, but that's a really interesting loop. And that's, it's really interesting that it came about because of us on raw doing this thing and you didn't want to let go of these two routes, which everyone <laughs> backed you on though. Everyone said, I mean, I think everyone had written it uh, they, yeah. except for me, but I think everybody has written it and thought it was just amazing. Well, I, I was very grateful that they were supportive of my greediness because <laughs> I, I, I feel in hindsight a little bit greedy about it, but I just feel genuinely that passionately about this is a section of, of the world, that a, a part of the world that people really should go and experience, whether by motorcycle or not. But it's, it's so much better on the back of a motorcycle. You can't even describe it. So Southern Chile, Southern Argentina, Patagonia in general, I think is just really the, the, yeah, it, it's the cherry on top of the whipped cream on top of the cake on top of everything. It's, it's incredible. So it's worth the trip. And again, Patagonia is, is just a region. It's not a country. It is. It's, it's just Correct. a region. It's really the, the whole Southern tip of South America. Correct. And it includes just those two countries, Chile and Argentina. What do you think is the best time of year to, to do this trip? Well, as it's, you know, below the 38th parallel and you're affected by seasons more greatly because it's so far from the equator, it's got a, you know, chance of snow. There are winds uh, in certain seasons that are stronger than in others. And Patagonia is famous for strong winds. I would recommend, I've heard of people going down there and having good travels, even in late October um, and sort of as late as the end of March, first part of April. So end of October to early April. So the Northern Hemisphere is winter is, is, a, is a perfect time. And so with, with that time frame that you've just given there, what sort of weather is there? Well, it can run the gamut, as you can imagine. And the thing to be mindful of is as you're crossing the rungs of the ladder, you're going to be crossing the Andes. So you're going up into higher altitudes, higher elevations, uh, definitely chances of snow, just as we have in North America, where a lot of roads are closed in uh, the winter season. That can happen down there where some of the higher mountain passes are closed because of snowfall. So you just have to be aware of that. In the coastal regions, you can have very sunny and warm days and t-shirt weather at times, but mostly the nights are pretty cool as you would expect in BC or coastal Alaska. And um, you can run into anything from rain, snow, um, yeah, a lot of wind. So you really need to be prepared as far as clothing and gear. So for the whole route, would you consider it sort of a coolish ride? I would. Yeah. Yes. And we didn't run into rain, but you can certainly do that. I mean, I, I don't remember much rain in Patagonia at all. It was what I remember about Patagonia more than anything is legitimately the wind. It, it was strong enough that it actually uh, tore a tent apart. We had a zipper that was uh, breaking on our tent and I had to take it to a mountain repair, mountain equipment repair company. It was a woman working in an old abandoned camper and she was replacing zippers on tents and sleeping bags um, and everything, you know, equipment wise, she would just repair things that were damaged and torn in the wind. So she nice. fixed the tent for me in Argentina. And th that wind, I, I mean, it was strong enough that there were a lot of places that we would sit out and stay an extra day and wait for the wind to subside or ride later in the evening or early in the morning. The strongest times of day I was told by locals are from noon to about 7 PM. So if you can ride early in the morning or after 7 PM and avoid the strongest peak hours of the wind, uh, then you can still make progress there. You know, I've met other travelers who didn't have that kind of wind when they were down there. I was in Patagonia for probably about six weeks. 
maybe a little bit more. Um, so there were certainly days that the wind wasn't as bad, but for the majority of it, it was, it was windy. So, and that's route of 40 mainly you're talking about as far as the wind or, or did you find a lot of wind on the other side as well? No, I'd say you're correct. Much stronger en route of Corinta because you're in, instead of being in those protected valleys and the fjordlands, you're out on the grassland and you're mm-hmm. exposed to the wind. Right. And it's the same as most areas. Most areas, you know, if you, if you get wind from weather, it's the heating of the, of the earth from the sun. The sun comes out, heats up the earth, the, the, the hot air rises, the air close to the earth heats up and it rises and that creates the wind. That's right. So it's it's common if you're in a windy area, think about going early in the morning. Jeez, even, you know, you might even want to start just at the crack of dawn to uh, to avoid that. But it's all doable though, right? I mean, because a lot of people report Ruta Corenta, Ruta 40 as... Um, like like you're saying, extremely windy. Some people have some horrible stories to tell about it. Yes, we did hear lots of horror stories about Ruta Quarenta. And locals are saying, you know, get out and ride early, get finished up by noon. We, as I was crossing Tierra del Fuego with my riding partner, we were leaving a village and uh, leaving a coffee shop, had just stopped for some lunch, had caught the ferry from the mainland down to Tierra del Fuego, uh, warmed up, got on the bikes, got going. And much of Ruta Quarenta at the time was gravel. And then the roads that we were on in Tierra del Fuego were largely gravel. And as you're riding in a strong crosswind, and I mean, it, it's not uncommon to have a hundred kilometer an hour, 60 mile per hour winds yeah. crossing you on a gravel road and they're gusty. It's not a sustained wind. Oh, so you're so really worse. swimming around in gravel. It was pretty treacherous at times. It's not as bad as you know, when you're on pavement, um, because you at least have that more, much more stability, but there were a lot of times that we would pull over and, and wait for either another day, if it was an extremely windy day or, you know, wait a few hours for the winds to die down and, and continue on. You just kind of work with it. I mean, it, it is absolutely part of life in Patagonia. It is part of life in that section of South America and you just have to work with it. So if you wanted to keep continuing South, you found a way to make it work. But it's not the type of winds that's going to keep you pinned for days or weeks on end. No, no, it wasn't. I mean, there was literally in maybe six to eight weeks there, there were probably three days that we chose not to ride, that Mm -hmm. it was that bad. And then there were maybe three other days that we would sit out for a few hours and take a really long lunch, wait for the winds to die down in the evening and then ride on, you know, maybe another hundred miles and scout a camping place. The challenge is putting up your tent in Patagonia. Oh, right. So, so <laughs> and have taking you, it down. did you develop a method for putting it up in, in incredible winds? I can say it's much better with two people than it is with one. <laughs> but, <laughs> or with four people than two people, for sure. <laughs> right. One on each corner. If you've got a team of four, that would work best. Right. I mean, it's kind of like on the coast, on the on the West Coast here in, in Canada, when you're camping, if, if it's pouring rain, the first thing you learn to do is you set up your tarp first, and then you have oh, some yeah. an area to work underneath to, to put your tent up in. And the best tents, which you you can't seem to find them anymore, but the best tents for for that sort of thing are tents that have a frame that you put the the um, the flyover and it, and it hooks onto the frame. And then you can assemble the inner part of the tent or the tent itself underneath it. That that works great for that. But for wind, wind is very very difficult because as you know, the right. moment you let go, they turn your back, pull something out, open up a bag, <laughs> and, and empty it, and drop the bag down. It's gone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's strong enough wind to pull your stakes out of the ground. So you literally, as you're putting your tent down, I was removing a heavy pannier and putting it inside the tent so that I oh, was sure that idea. it wouldn't blow away. Yeah. Right. And wow. you, I chose intentionally chose a low profile tent because the higher the peak of the tent, the more exposed, you know, the more it's getting battered by the wind and you just won't sleep in it. It rattles and flaps all night and you just, you just kind of figure it out. Oh, that's a very good point. That's a good tip. So uh, culturally between the two routes. So if you're, you're doing this loop, the route of 40, route of Corrente in uh, Argentina, the Carretera Astral in Chile, between these two routes, culturally, is there a huge difference no, I think, I think there was uh, at least noticeably to me on the Chile side, there really has much more of a vibe of fishing villages. And again, you're in these more protected fjord lands. We attended, uh, there were a group of motorcyclists traveling the Carretera Astral together. So staying at a hostel, I connected with maybe a half dozen friends 
And we went to a rodeo in southern Chile near uh, the Carretera Austral. It was actually as we were camped along the Carretera Austral. So we could see the local Chileno ranchers working with cattle, working with their horses. It's very much part of their culture. They eat a lot of seafood, um, play a lot of guitar music around the campfire. Both countries are famous for having an asadero or um, a lamb that they cook on sort of a a metal frame over a, a fire and they roast that. So roast lamb is very common on both sides of the Andes, but they do it just a little bit differently between Chile and Argentina. The foods are a little bit different. The music is a little bit different, but really, um, there, there's still some similarities between the two on the Argentinian side. I would say not so much the fishing village type of life as there is a a larger representation of ranchers and farmers and um, homes seem to be these big haciendas and estates and very dispersed because the land is very arid. And uh, I don't think that it supports maybe as much uh, livestock. So they need more land to support a smaller number of animals, if that makes sense, because it's just everything's so slow growing. Exactly. It's poor grazing down there. That's um, just, just part of life down there, but both countries and both um, experiences, again, lots of similarities and some uniquenesses, but both really beautiful. And what do we call this again? Is this the Patagonia loop? Uh, Yeah. I I think was that what you said? That is what we called it on the raw episode, the Patagonia loop. And I debated about calling it a ladder, but no, I think it's the Patagonia loop. I think that works. The Patagonia loop. I love it. (laughs) I mean, the way you've described it, it's, it's definitely, uh, it sounds like an incredible spot to go and ride really an ultimate spot to go and ride. Is there anything that's that you would compare it to? Is there anything that this compares to? Oh gosh, not that I know of. Which is why it's on the list. Yeah, which is why it's on the list of the seven (laughs) wonders of the motorcycle travel world. That's exactly right. Wow, Michelle, that was great. Thank you very much. That was good fun. Well, good. And thank you. It was so much fun doing the episode of the seven wonders and getting to share a little bit more and, and work on our joint creation, the Patagonia Loop. So thank you. Michelle Lampfair from the Black Hills of South Dakota. Her website is sturgischick.com, that link, as well as some absolutely must-see photos of the area that we've been talking about today are all in the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. As a matter of fact, it wraps up another year. This is the last show for the year. And I think we're in our ninth year of production. We're we're into our, well, more than halfway through, I guess, our ninth year of production of Adventure Rider Radio. I can't believe it. It it gets better. It, It gets more fun for me every year that we go by, every one that I do. It seems to, I mean, I enjoy this so much. And thank you so much for being a part of this because you're the reason we do it. If you weren't listening, it just wouldn't work. And um, that means a huge deal to us. It really does. And, and I appreciate that. So thank you. So I'm wishing you, um, oh, and, and, and special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And really from the both of us, we we really, we both, we are the team at Adventure Rider Radio. Other than our raw crew, which are a great bunch of people, and they work on the raw show with us. So from Elizabeth and I, we wish you all the best for 2023 really hope that you get out there and find time to ride your bike or whatever it is that you like to do that puts a smile on your face and makes life just fantastic and i I really um we hope you just have an amazing gear coming up 
Thank you so much for listening and being a part of Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next year. I'm Lyndon Poskett from Races to Places, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 